Hello and welcome to Anesthesia on Air from the Royal College of Anaesthetists. For today's edition, we're bringing you an episode of the Faculty of Pain Medicine's podcast, which covers surgery and opioids. But just before we begin, we want to thank you for listening to Anesthesia on Air, and we really hope you're enjoying the podcasts we bring you. If you are, we would really appreciate it if you could write us a review on whichever platform you use. It really helps other people find our podcast. Also, if there's any topics you would like us to cover, please email podcast at rcoa.ac.uk. We hope you enjoy this edition of Anesthesia on Air. Hello and welcome to the third in the series of pain podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us. And today we're going to discuss surgery and opioids. It's quite a topical subject because there's been a recent guideline that's been produced by the Faculty of Pain Medicine. And what we'll be doing throughout this recording is referring to this guideline in the next 30 minutes or so. You might actually want to have a look at these guidelines if you haven't done already, and you'll find that they're free to download from the RCOA website. There's a lot of interest at the moment in managing opioids in the perioperative setting. And what we plan to do in the next half hour or so is to give you some practical hints and tips. So to introduce myself, I'm Dr. Helen Makins. I'm a consultant in pain medicine and anaesthetics in Gloucestershire Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. And I'm joined today by Dr. Doug Natouche, who's also a consultant in pain medicine and anaesthetics. And he works at Torbay and South Devon NHS Foundation Trust. We're both members of the Training and Assessment Committee at the Faculty of Pain Medicine, and we both also have other roles. I'm the faculty lead for the Essential Pain Management UK project, and that's a national teaching programme for pain management. And Doug is also a founding examiner of the FFPM RCA exam. Oh, hi, Helen, and welcome everyone to Pain Podcast 3. Hi, Doug. Thanks for joining us. So the new faculty guidance is about using opioids where necessary and then stopping them when they're no longer required. In other words, what we might refer to as good opioid stewardship. The report identifies the need to ensure that people taking opioids perioperatively are recognised and managed appropriately. Our aim is to identify not only if they're on prescription opioids and how much they're taking, but also to look at the risk factors for opioid misuse. And postoperatively, if people do develop persistent post-surgical pain, then we need to focus on making sure that that's recognised and treated appropriately. Doug, do you want to say a bit more about why there's such interest and importantly, concern, I guess, around opioids and surgery at the moment? Okay, well, thanks, Helen. Well, as we all know, as anaesthetists, opioids have been used for pain relief after surgery, really, for about the last century. But it's increasingly recognised opioids used in the community were actually started after surgery, even minor operations. And previous approaches to opioid stewardship were just not always clear and robust. Uh, This has contributed to what's referred to as the opioid epidemic. And it might be the case that people have ended up taking opioids long term for post-operative pain, but it might not actually even be the optimal treatment for them. So, for example, the faculty report quotes United States data where 6% of people versus 0.4% of the population as controls are using opioids 90 to 180 days after an operation. Uh, That's a rate about 12 times higher. And although this isn't UK data, we just mustn't be complacent about the problem of creating long-term opioid use in people after surgery. And as anaesthetists, we have key responsibility and influence in this area. 
And it may be we don't really see the impact further down the line in primary care. And this is a particular problem if we don't have robust lines of communication in place. We really need to provide clear advice and guidance for our patients and set appropriate expectations for them about post-operative pain. We know we can't abolish all pain after surgery all the time, but we can make things a lot better and normally reduce it to a level people can tolerate and it doesn't interfere with their recovery. We need to explain to people not only why they're being prescribed these medicines, but also the risks and benefits of taking them, and importantly, how to stop them, i.e. not just give them information about starting them. This needs to be clear and written guidance, as is pointed out in the publication, to take home as well as any discussion in the preoperative clinics or on the ward or after surgery. And I think it's quite important to pause and think, you know, on the line of what do you remember after surgery? I can talk from personal experience, but it's backed up by a very simple but useful research study that was undertaken in our local day surgery unit in Torbay, uh, led by Dr. Claire Blanford and colleagues, which found that while you can often have a coherent conversation with somebody after their awakening from a general anaesthetic, Unfortunately, for about the first 40 minutes or so, they may not remember the information from the discussion as the setting down of new memory continues to be impaired. And unfortunately, that was my own experience after surgery. So let's start preoperatively, Doug. What issues do you think come up in preoperative clinics? Okay, Helen. Well, I think the main one is recognising and managing people prescribed strong opioids already and identifying people who've run into issues with opioid dependency, misuse or other side effects. Uh, being opioid tolerant can really worsen perioperative pain. We found this in an audit in South Devon, which showed being opioid tolerant before surgery, it just not only resulted in a more problematic pain experience, but also necessitated more visits than average from the acute pain team to sort things out. So other factors like anxiety, depression, current or previous alcohol use or substance misuse uh, are risk factors for opioid misuse. And they also potentially contribute to a poor post-operative experience, many of these factors in their own right. I think it's important to remember psychological factors can powerfully impact on the post-operative pain experience, particularly severe anxiety associated with ruminating worry or catastrophizing, as it's sometimes called. Uh, all anaesthetists are likely to have seen highly anxious and distressed people in recovery units after surgery, needing significantly more analgesics than would be expected, and will recognise this phenomenon i.e. where emotional distress negatively impacts on the effect of analgesics as well as pain perception. And this is seen in studies as well. So the impact of severe anxiety on pain perception and analgesic efficacy can extend well beyond the recovery room, unfortunately, and it can really affect the post-operative pain experience and rehab. But Helen, what would you do, say, for example, a 70-year-old lady in reasonable health coming in for a hip replacement and their GP's been managing their pain with a 20 microgram buprenorphine cutaneous patch for the last month because they can't tolerate non-steroidals. Well, I think the first thing I'd do is direct everyone to another useful FPM resource, which is also available on the website, and that's called Opioids Aware. And this is a great resource which summarises the evidence around opioids and gives some really practical advice around prescribing. It's got lots of information on there for patients as well as for clinicians, and I think it's really helpful. The guidance recommends that all patients on pre-op opioids should have their 24-hour morphine equivalence dose estimated. And there's also a very useful opioid dose conversion chart to assist with this within the resource. So looking at that conversion, a 20 microgram per hour buprenorphine patch is the dose equivalent of giving 48 milligrams of morphine in 24 hours. 
And that's really important to recognise because it's a reasonable dose and it's likely to be missed by the patient if it's suddenly discontinued. Sometimes I think my colleagues have worried about the potential impact of buprenorphine patches on other opioids that they might use in theatre. But just to reassure everyone, studies have shown that the patches that we use for pain relief generally don't impact on other opioids in practice. When it's used in very high doses for heroin substitution and in addiction medicine, buprenorphine can be a specific problem, but I think we'll go into that a bit later. It's important also to know that the guidance isn't all about opioids and there are some other areas to be considered in optimal prehabilitation. These include good psychological management as well as patient education, setting realistic expectations about the pain reliefs after surgery and also following the normal advice about physical activity, eating and drinking. Creating a perioperative management plan at this stage is very helpful and it should involve pain specialists for complex cases. Sometimes it's appropriate to wean opioids preoperatively, and we'll come to that in a minute. We like to include a structure to approaching these patients with pain as part of our essential pain management approach, because that seems to be really helpful for all of us, even though our focus in teaching so far has been on medical students and foundation doctors. I'd advocate the first step being recognising what type of pain the patient has preoperatively. So example, for example, if it's only a uni joint osteoarthritis or whether it's a more of a widespread pain problem like fibromyalgia that might point to them already having a sensitised nervous system. I'd also want to know if they've been taking painkillers long term regularly. The second step is assessing. And so we need to assess the pain by measuring it preoperatively on a scale. So there's a record of the baseline pain on movement at rest. I'd also be interested in finding out about their previous experience of pain. So does the patient have any common mental health problems like anxiety or depression? Have they had any problems with opioids or other drugs in the past? Have they had previous poor experience of pain post-surgery? Or are they very anxious about this procedure? And if so, why? These things form the first bit of R, A and T, or recognise, assess and treat, which is the approach we teach in essential pain management. And it's just as applicable to the perioperative setting as it is in any other pain setting. And it allows us to be really systematic in how we plan to manage the pain perioperatively. There is some evidence for opioid reduction preoperatively, and the guidelines advise us if possible. What would you say here, Doug? Well, there is some evidence that opioid weeding preoperatively can be helpful. For example, before joint arthroplasty, where opioids are not usually useful for pain on movement anyway. Obviously, if a person has cancer pain and needs cancer surgery, it's, it's just not appropriate to taper down opioids and it's best to consult their palliative care prescribers first. And fairly similarly, if someone's on methadone or high-dose buprenorphine as part of a substitution program for heroin misuse, again, speak to their addiction team and they'll be key allies in coming up with a good pain plan. But winning opioids can be really helpful if they are basically no longer achieving the degree of analgesia preoperatively they should be because of opioid tolerance or if they're causing very significant side effects that are problematical and maybe actually question the benefit of the person taking them all together. Experience shows that being opioid tolerant preoperatively can make managing acute pain postoperatively more of a challenge. So tapering opioids down that are not helpful can be useful. And it's particularly, it's unlikely that people are getting benefits if they're on what we would regard as very high-dose opioids. Now, the FPM's Opioids Aware Resource, Helen's mentioned before, um, defines a high dose of opioid as being really anything over 120 milligrams of morphine equivalent in a 24-hour period. Now, there are actually very few studies looking at opioids in higher doses, and almost none above 180 milligrams. 
And I think if it's possible to taper opioids out of the high dose range before surgery, particularly if they're not providing good pain relief or there's a lot of side effects happening for the patient, then the guidance supports this. And reduction can be helpful. And it may be the patient actually finds they get a similar analgesic effect to the lower dose with a lot fewer side effects. The bottom line, really, I think, is we should be much more confident about stopping drugs that aren't working or only helping very partially. There are three key issues you've got to be really aware of to facilitate opioid tapering. Firstly, over-rapid tapering can cause pain from withdrawal and hamper the process. Second, opioids have analgesic effects, as we all know, but they also have antalgesic or hyperalgesic side effects via different mechanisms, both occurring at the same time. So, for example, one study did show demonstrable effects on opioid-induced hyperalgesia after a single infusion of remifentanil. Now, normally in opioid-naive people, the balance is tipped to analgesia, but the balance may be tipping away from analgesia, particularly if they're used for high-dose visit over a long period of time. And this is even before we start taking mechanisms of tolerance into consideration, which really complicates the picture. Now, opioid-induced hyperalgesia can manifest either as widespread pain or headaches, or sometimes both, or sometimes you might see a paradoxical worsening of the original pain. And the third and final point is opioid withdrawal symptoms are not consistent between individuals, but can be very unpleasant. And people who can struggle even to stop low doses of some simple opioids sometimes as a result. So, in summary, when thinking about opioid tapering, avoid doing it rapidly because over-rapid withdrawal can cause pain. Keep in mind, hyperalgesic side effects might be occurring from strong opioids, and also that withdrawal symptoms are just very diverse. Okay, great, Doug. So if you think the time is right to taper opioids in pre-op assessment clinic, how would you do it? Well, first, you can't do it easily yourself unless you run a regular clinic if the person support over a period of time. And if not, you'll neither need help from the patient's GP, other valuable allies can be the practice pharmacist or the local pain team nurses. And second, it might take a few months to achieve, kind of depending on the starting dose. And it might be that dose reduction, as we've discussed before, and not complete discontinuation is a more realistic goal before surgery if time's limited. Uh, from experience, the patients need to really understand why they're doing this and engage in wanting to reduce their own medication. And we found in pain clinics that coming off strong opioids that are not effective for pain, even if they were to start with, a few months later, people really don't feel any different pain-wise. And they're usually delighted they're no longer living with complications, some of which they didn't always recognise, like brain fog, fatigue, excessive sweating, as well as the more kind of regular and recognised complications like constipation, headaches and feeling nauseated all the time, which are themselves pretty unpleasant. So you need to get an idea before you start by checking if the patient is opioid dependent. And this is more likely if they're prescribed more than 60 milligrams of morphine equivalent in a day. But I think what's more important is to ask basically if they experience withdrawal symptoms if they miss a dose or have too long a period between doses, i.e. don't just rely on the cutoff. And if they do, they'll need to taper down and just not stop their drugs abruptly. So for opioid weaning, what was actually recommended from experience in the addiction field is to taper by making a 10% reduction every two weeks using what's called a park and pause approach. Now, what this basically means, if there's a pain flare-up occurs during the reduction, this may be as a result of over-rapid op opioid withdrawal. And as mentioned before, this can really be mistaken for a failure of analgesia. 
Now, if you use this approach by pausing for a while to get over this withdrawal-related flare-up of pain, most people can actually be tapered off opioids very successfully. But they do need encouragement and support, and there isn't always good alternatives to give them in the process. Um, as well as the Opioids Aware website, there's actually very good data on the US Center for Disease Controls website, which has very good online resources for opioid tapering if you want to find out more. And I think this is one area that's recognized in the report that services may need to change and they may need to be further developed in preoperative clinics. So in summary, preoperative opioid tapering may be helpful for people on high-dose opioids, those experiencing problematical side effects, or people who aren't really getting a benefit from them anymore. Reducing the dose rather than necessarily discontinuing is actually helpful. Um, and I think it's a useful strategy for the right people, but it does need help and support to do so for them. Thanks, Doug. So just to summarise at this point then, the guidance recommends that people should be screened for opioid use and chronic pain in the perioperative period. They also suggest that the 24-hour dose should be expressed in oral morphine equivalent and that prehabilitation should also include optimising opioid prescribing as well as psychological preparation and education of the patient and expectation management. And what we've also said is that complex cases should be referred to a pain specialist if needed and an opioid weaning plan should be considered if appropriate. So for opioid weaning, Doug, you're recommending a 10% reduction every two weeks with a park and pause if there's a flare-up in the process, and that that process should be supervised. And the guidelines at this point point out, really, that there may be areas that need service redesign in order to be able to achieve this, and suggest creating an individualised perioperative pain management plan when it's appropriate. We also mentioned people prescribed methadone and buprenorphine for addiction. Doug, do you have any comments on that? Okay, so I think this is an area I would advise people to seek expert help. Both methadone and buprenorphine are complex drugs that have effect beyond the mu receptor. Both cause significant problems if stopped abruptly at the doses normally prescribed for substitution as well to note. Buprenorphine, for example, is prescribed in milligrams in the addiction setting, not in micrograms as we normally would in a pain setting. And at these doses, buprenorphine can interact with other pure mu-acting opioids. If you'd like further information, then the Opioids Aware website has good advice on the use of opioids in acute pain and good links. And I'd also flag up the publication that's freely available from the Australasian or ANZICA Faculty of Pain Medicine, our sister faculty, and it's called Acute Pain management, the scientific evidence third edition, and it's very useful and you can download it for free on the internet. But moving on to intraoperative management, Helen, uh, what's advised? Well, I think our audience of anaesthetists might have a bit of a moment at this point, Doug, because managing pain is obviously a core function of what we all do. I don't think we need to go into much detail um, about the intraoperative pain relief, but just to say that the guidance does endorse tailored multimodal analgesia along with regional anaesthetic techniques where that's appropriate. I don't think we need to go into much more detail about that here, and I suggest we move on to the post-op scenario. Doug, what are your thoughts here? Well, the guidance is certainly more comprehensive in this section, but its real core goals are to try and minimise post-op pain quite reasonably, to provide a seamless transition of analgesic management from theatres to recovery to the ward to discharge, to match the analgesic plan to the type of surgery and the stage of recovery and promote normal function, i.e. eating, drinking and mobilising. The post-operative instructions for PACU or recovery are what I anticipate most anaesthetists would expect them to be to optimise pain release, leaving recovery. And it's just important to remember that enhanced recovery or rapid recovery programmes 
we should really be looking at functional activity as well as pain, even in the early stages. Uh, we also need to consider how to help people with complex pain problems, but not forget compassionate communication and not just rely on pain scores to guide giving analgesia, but take the whole situation in context. But Helen, what would you actually do in practice for people already on opioids post-op? But if somebody's already opioid tolerant and taking a strong opioid regularly, then the first thing I would check is what the morphine dose equivalence is. And to do that, I'd use that Opioids Aware website table that we talked about earlier. And then normally the plan would be to leave that dose steady and then to think of other ways of managing pain in addition to that. So the first thing would be to definitely maximise the use of combined simple analgesics. So that would be paracetamol and ibuprofen or another anti-inflammatory, assuming that they can tolerate that. And then also to consider, as we've said, what could be done with local anaesthetics and regional techniques. Sometimes the person needs a simple additional oral breakthrough opioid, like a short acting oral morphine liquid. And I'm, I think it's worth remembering at this point that liquid morphine is actually a Schedule 5 drug now, not a control drug. And that's really important because it means it's often quicker and easier to administer because there's only one nurse needed and there's no double checking required. Sometimes, obviously, patients can benefit from opioid PCA or patient-controlled analgesia, and that's often set up to deliver a higher than a standard bolus dose in a patient who's already opioid tolerant. Sometimes with enhanced recovery patients, the, the patient can take their normal opioid medication orally after the surgery, which then means that there's no need for a background infusion with the PCA and they can just continue with their normal oral dose in the background. But it is very important to ensure that the observations are done really carefully, particularly watching the sedation and respiratory rates. It's probably also worth mentioning at this point about breakthrough opioid doses. And we generally tend to use the commonly used teaching from palliative care, which recommends that one sixth of the overall daily dose should be used as a breakthrough dose. But obviously, this is just a guide. And one of the issues in the post-op scenario is that opioids tend to be prescribed every two hours or so, which often means that the one sixth of the total daily dose is too much for a dose that's going to be given so frequently. So that might need to be reduced. It's also worth considering different opioids, although there isn't really any evidence in reality to support the use of one strong opioid over another. There is a study which was reported from Canada by Rodriguez and colleagues, where they actually looked at switching pain protocols from using morphine as a standard to using hydromorphone across a whole surgical service. They did this because they thought there'd be some pharmacological advantages in terms of the side effects. But actually, the results showed that there wasn't much to distinguish between the two groups. So the message really is that whichever opioid you choose, there'll be some people who get problems and side effects and some people who don't. And it's all very individual. The main things to take into consideration when considering which um, opioid to use are really the patient's previous experience and also obviously avoid medications that have any metabolite accumulation in renal failure if that's a problem for the particular patient. But most importantly, there need to be good pathways in place for consistent or sometimes even protocolised prescribing. And the nursing and ward staff need to be really well educated and trained to assess and respond to the pain using safe frameworks. And then I think we should perhaps consider the issue of severe breakthrough pain and recovery where opioids just aren't working effectively. And I'm sure that's something we've all come across periodically. And in this scenario, there are a couple of, um, of good options. The first would be to use ketamine as a first line alternative, which can be used parenterally, or the alternative would be using clonidine as a second line. And as with the different opioids, both of these medications have got advantages and disadvantages. 
Ketamine is notorious for neuropsychiatric side effects and clonidine for impact on blood pressure, lowering the blood pressure. But they often do do the job as alternatives to opioids, particularly if that's a, a problem and the patient is struggling. Ketamine infusions are quite commonly used nowadays by acute pain teams and they are generally used for more complex cases and they can certainly provide a helpful background level of non-opioid analgesia by their effect on NMDA receptors. Doug, do you have any other thoughts? Uh, I agree. I think most of our anaesthetic colleagues are very adept at managing post-op pain and they tend to seek out advice only about drugs and conditions they're not usually very familiar with. But just as an aside, um, Oromorph contains three grams of sugar for 10 mils and some preparations contain 10% absolute alcohol. This isn't always a problem, but it's, it's occasionally worth thinking about if people are taking a lot of it. Uh, but Helen, on to discharge now and near the end of the process, but an important stage. Yes, perhaps the most important one with regards to good opioid stewardship. Uh, okay, agree. And what sort of suggestions have you got here? Well, at the warden discharge stage, I think it's really important to review what the analgesic needs are and to then plan all the analgesics, including opioids, gabapentinoids and antidepressants that are used for pain. Anyone who's going home after surgery is going to need information on how to self-administer their medications safely, but they'll also need to know how to wean and stop them and what to do with any unused drugs once they've finished taking them at home. There has been some research to show that pain control is better when people keep a written record of what they've taken, so it's probably worth encouraging patients to keep a simple diary. Clearly, the discharge summaries are going to need to be created in a timely manner. And if they include strong opioids, then the summary needs to clearly state when and how to stop the opioid medication. In fact, our acute pain service in Gloucestershire have found it really helpful to liaise directly with the GP, as well as writing the instructions in the discharge summary. And there also needs to be a mechanism and a plan for specialist pain follow up if that's needed. Doug, any further comments on that? need to reinforce good communication with primary care about stopping strong opioid medication. This is absolutely key and it should really be built into standard communications on discharge and not really be left for something for individuals to remember on a case-by-case -case basis. I think that's all I would say, really. That's great, Doug. Thank you. Well, we'd both like to thank you for listening and we hope you found this session a useful addition to the written guidance. We'd particularly like to thank Dr Paul Wilkinson and his colleagues from the Faculty of Pain Medicine Professional Standards Committee for producing the guidance. If you'd like to look further at the written guidance, there's just a reminder here to go to the Royal College of Anaesthetists website and search for Surgery and Opioids Best Practice Guidance 2021. Okay, well, all that remains now is to say thank you all and goodbye.